Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been well over 300 of them now, and if you're new to this, go to batgap.com, check out the past interviews menu, and you'll see them categorized and organized in various ways. Also, this show is dependent upon the support of appreciative viewers and listeners, so if you feel inclined to support it, there's a donate button there. My guest today is Jane Anderson Ross. Hi, Jane. Hi. <laughs> Jane is a wife, mother, and grandmother, currently living in Rochester, New York. She was raised in the New Jersey suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, she always had the gifts of love and compassion, and even as a young child, felt that her life was to help others heal. But in 1988, during the throes of her own trials and difficulties, Jane had a transformation that was prompted by a singular prayer. She surrendered to the divine creator and asked, let me be your eyes, your ears, your hands, and your heart. From that prayer came what she can only describe as a rebirth, a profound transformation with a pure divine directive. However, still very much Jane, she continued on as a devoted wife and mother of two babies. What became extraordinary to her, though, was the divine events, healings, and transformations that touched not only her own life, but that of many others who came into contact with her. Nevertheless, Jane's love, humility, and simplicity never wavered, and she decided to enter into the field of holistic healing arts. She began sharing her gifts through a spiritually-based newsletter, which included divinely inspired writings and poetry. Later, she added more formal professional training, became a shiatsu and Thai massage therapist, Reiki master, aromatherapy, and naturopathic aesthetician. Other modalities included ancient palmistry and psychic mediumship. Jane is happy to share her story with all who ask and feels that her expression is best stated by the following. It matters not what we do, but from where we come whilst doing it. Well, thanks, Jane. That gave everybody a little bit of a synopsis. And yeah. uh, where would you like to pick up the story? And incidentally, I just want to say that a lot of people who come onto this show are pretty well known and they've written books and, and so on. And, but the original intention of the show was and in fact, the subtitle of the show is Interviews with, spiritually, with Ordinary Spiritually Awakening People. And sometimes mm -hmm. people even grumble that, well, you know, why have all these famous people on? What happened to the ordinary people? <laughs> so you'd sort of fall into the... I mean, in, we consider all the people ordinary. Yeah, as I was about to say, and I, as Irene just said, we cons I consider everybody ordinary. I mean, we all perform the same bodily functions. Compared to Buddha, <laughs> But it's nice to have somebody on the show from time to time who isn't well-known. And, and because I think people can sometimes relate to it better, sometimes there's an aura of specialness around somebody like Eckhart Tolle or Deepak Chopra or something like that. But, you know, we all put our pants on one leg at a time if we wear mm -hmm. pants and, and so on. Definitely. Yeah. So anyway, where should we pick up the story? Well, I just want to thank you for what you do, first of all. And also, I really liked listening to what you read about my bio, and it touched me. I haven't read it in a long time, and Charles uh, helped me write it. Oh, good. And it just it touches my heart again and again, and that's probably my whole embodiment is how I'm touching someone's heart. I mean, just saying that makes me feel that emotion. Mm -hmm. I think that's where we all connect in this journey, no matter what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And for me, my journey has always been about simplicity. And I think what happened to me in 88 came from embodying simplicity, mm. innocence, and some level of purity. <laughs> because before I had um, this awakening, I think it's hard to say what you are when you are it. Mm 
you know what I mean? But I perceive myself through myself as a pretty pure-hearted being, mm -hmm. child, and finding myself very sensitive, um, not really understanding maybe how other children were treating other children or I sort of was always connected to nature and always looking up at the sky and mm. uh, but you know I was out there playing hard and climbing trees but then I would sit in the trees yeah and I would commune with the trees and I have had, had friends that do that too I mean a lot of us did that back in that that day and time wish wish people would do it more and did if you have I much of a religious upbringing my mother was um, turned off by the church and we were raised Catholic, so mm -hmm. I didn't. So mine was pretty much just being in nature and my own connection. But I did have um, a re-entry into our religious um, upbringing when my mother came to her own spiritual awakening. But it was a little, it was different than mine because it was within her paradigm of Catholicism. Mm. There seems to be something in your bloodlines because your cousin also had an awakening, which we're going to talk about. <laughs> uh, so that's, I think that's actually kind of interesting and significant. You mentioned purity and, um, you know, there's that saying in the Bible, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons or some such thing, that, that there can be a certain degree of purity or, or impurity in, and that it can actually be passed on from generation to generation and of course one can work work through it if something negative has been passed on but um, mm. but often you do find that there's a correlation between parents who have not always but sometimes that parents who have a spiritual awakening or a spiritual inclination or something and then children who also do like the, the specialness kind of mm -hmm. is um, handed down yeah I would think that I would cling to anything that had to do with love as a child. And yes, and so that part of what I saw in the religion, my eyes were always fixed on where love was coming from as a child. About five years old, one of the pivotal things that I remember is going to the doctors. I love the doctors. Really? In a sense that I loved what they were doing, how they were reaching people and helping. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had such a you know, what was I doing all day? I wasn't doing very much, but I really enjoyed that healing aspect. I think that's why my life gravitated to that. Mm. Um, but we can talk about later how it became um, instrumental and, and more professional. But anyway, I used to tell my mother very expressively, like achingly, that I love people. Mm. I love them so much. And I want to be a doctor. But I said, but the kind of doctor I'll be will be someone that goes do door to door helping people, but I won't charge them any money. <laughs> and I was so passionate about that. And I understood it later. Mm, that's nice. Mm -hmm. There are some medical traditions, I think maybe China and India, or at least it, they used to be, where the doctors got paid as long as people were healthy. When, when people got sick, yes. the doctors stopped getting paid. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, interesting. So, um, in 1988, uh, well, are there more significant things we should touch upon before 1988? Mm. So, when my mother um, had her awakening, uh, we didn't really know about it, except that I just wanted to touch in on that religious aspect. Yeah, sure. We were brought into the church, so suddenly in Catholic Church, you have um, we had our baptism. 
we miss the Holy Communion for Catholics out there mm -hmm. and our confirmation in my case because I was uh, 11 I think at that time and what happened was I was excited to be in this place where people were talking about love like in a community because earlier in my life I had sensed love I was connected to love I was in nature with that and um, and here was me and some of my classmates in this catechism type thing talking about singing about loving each other sharing each other's burdens sharing each other's joys and usually you know the boys were usually like trying to push you out of the way to get in line so mm -hmm. I'm like this is like what I've been looking for this mm -hmm. is it and so I was very grateful about that um, but then it's sort of petered into teenage years which has its own interesting plays and right. uh, about 13 I was very attracted to and God knows where I came from Carlos Castaneda hmm. <laughs> my first book outside of the story books that you would have to read was the teachings of Don Juan impressive <laughs> at the age of 13 yeah I don't know if I should say it or not but I I actually felt this lift and I felt like I could fly I only had a one-story bedroom I we had a two-story house and I uh, I jumped out I remember my father got mad at Yikes. me it wasn't much of a jump for tree climbing people like me and yeah. nature people, but well, there was just, a thing at the end of one of Castaneda's yeah. books where he jumped off a cliff, and, and that was the end of the book, and you had to wait till the next book to see what was going to happen. And I really, I hope not too many people actually tried mm -hmm. that. <laughs> it sounds like you mm -hmm. did. <laughs> yeah, I did, and and who knows? Maybe it was sort of like you, you know, as you bring up maybe an initiation or sort of a passage into into trying to understand whatever it is that I was trying to understand about who I'll be or who I am. Did you kind of expect you were going to fly when you jumped out the window? Mm -mm. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting is this is pivotal because I started getting, my mother would cut her hair back in the day and I would get my hair cut. So I got to get my hair cut, mom, I'm getting teased at a little, at a salon. And there were these really cool ladies that work there, sort of hippie ladies. I remember having sort of therapy sessions, you know, with your hair dresser mm. for the first time and another adult and someone who was open and someone who seemed somewhat esoteric if I could imagine what that would have been at that age and what was interesting is that years later I lost track with her and grew up I was about in my 30s and I reconnected with her at another salon and I said you know it would be interesting to find out what I was like in your eyes at that age because I had gone through my transformation in 88 mm -hmm. And she said, uh, she said, Jane, she said, you dance, you, um, you beat uh, to a different drummer. What, how does oh, that you, you, March Yeah, to you march to the beat of a different drummer. And she said, and I ached when I listened to you because you had this wisdom that 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds shouldn't have, you know, mm. and you were struggling to fit in with your peers with that. You know, everything seemed, there was a lot of common sense in my personality and I, I couldn't understand why some friends and I would say certain things to them and they think what are what's wrong with you you know why aren't you you know just going along with everybody so I kept quiet I think I just started to be more introverted if I wasn't already interesting you mentioned teenage years and a lot of people I interview like who had profound experiences as a child ended up losing them during their teenage years you know and even sometimes getting into drugs and stuff but did you come through your teenage years <laughs> relatively unscathed well, what was interesting as I look back is that I guess age 13 in my area where I grew up, which was just over the bridge from Philadelphia, it was a blue collar area. Camden? 
a couple over from Camden, okay. Maple Shade, Maple Shade near Cherry Hill. So anyway, a lot of friends of mine started turning and doing drugs and testing things, and and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep myself pure, yeah. and I was very sad that I couldn't find anybody that wanted to do it. And my best friend, because when I love friends, I was loving very like holy with the w h holy right just holy and um so i was very disappointed that my best friend was turning in that direction and ousted me if i wouldn't follow so it's really hard as a teenager trying to keep that i mean at that sure. point it would have been nice to enter the ashram yeah <laughs> it's interesting but, that you had a concept of purity i didn't really have any concept of it at that age i just sort of did whatever kind of felt good you know and <laughs> and then had to do a lot of repair work later on but it's a blessing that you had that well, I didn't know what it was purity. I just, it just was absolutely right. It yeah. was absolute. So I had a couple years where I didn't involve myself and I would go to school and I'd come home and I'd get teased. I kind of was called names and perhaps viewed as being stuck up because I was just on my own and my own. I was doing what I had to do. It was like right. these years were tough and let's see how we can get through them. You yeah, know? that's great. So maybe that was important too. You know, to I have that. Oh, I think it was, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. That's a good example. I mean, if any young people are listening to this, yes. it might be an inspiration to them not to succumb to peer pressure. Yes, and that inspiration translates to my, well, Charles and I's daughter. I have two others from my first marriage. They're mm -hmm. the ones that were around during the time that I had the rebirth, mm -hmm. um, what I call a rebirth, mm -hmm. because I didn't have words back then. You know, I didn't know what to call anything, which makes the experience interesting because it's organic. So even though words came to me through understanding and transformation would be a key word, mm -hmm. we're moving ahead a little bit to 88. Yeah. Um, it's, it just stays with you when it, when it sort of reverberates throughout you as a way to understand what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to just go back. So when I integrated back into the teen scene, quote-unquote, um, I kind of came back in on my own terms. I came in and just saying, you know, no, I will do this, you know, maybe I'll try a cigarette, and these things are okay, and, you know, hanging out this way is okay. And, you know, and I hung out with whoever they were, but I hung out on my own terms. Mm. I said, you do what you're going to do, and I'm going to stand. And, and because I did that, I think it shocked everybody. Mm. You know, they were like, Oh, they didn't know what to say, you know, what, what do you do with that, you know? And I just stood there, I stood my ground. And I said, you know, I wouldn't want to smoke pot because I just think it just, it makes you foggy and it makes you, why do you want to be like that? And so they would let me stand there, you know, and like say, oh, don't let my mom watch this. <laughs> <laughs> she probably still doesn't know. <laughs> but I mean, that's what happened. I mean, that's what was happening. No, that's great. I shouldn't keep talking about myself so much, but when, when I kind of decided to clean up my act, I went through a period of several months where I, I didn't have any friends. I just walked the dog every morning and meditated and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And just because I felt like I had to make a clean break with people who were doing stuff that I knew I shouldn't keep doing. And, uh, you know, and then eventually your life gets reconstructed with new friends and, and new habits and patterns. There's, a, there's an ancient Bengali saying, which is that if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. Uh, so it's, it's a good guiding principle of you know, yeah. not sort of succumbing to peer pressure and doing what you know to be the right thing. Yes, and we have a near, she just turned 18, our daughter, Charles mm -hmm. and I, and, uh, and she's 
walk that same path and we've encouraged it and she's really getting her spirit strong and understanding what that means. That's great. And I'm like, this is wonderful that you're carrying this with you into your life as you get ready for your life. That's pivotal in what I teach my children. Yeah. Don't go out there without your suitcases of security and your suitcases of strength, your faith, all of those things. Then go out because otherwise you'll go back and forth. Yeah. That's and when great. they're out, I want them out. They <laughs> 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 <I> can visit. <laughs> yeah. All righty. How old were you in 1988? 26. 26. Okay. And so that was your big breakthrough time. Yeah. I wanted to just preface a tiny oh, sure. Go ahead. In. I'm glad you're doing it this week. Yeah. You have you have the timeline in mind, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I actually don't, but thank God it's coming through that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was hoping it would, because details sort of elude me and have eluded me through the years as mm -hmm. you integrate. And it's been a while, just to remind. It's been 27 years yeah. since 88. So anyway, back in, I guess I was 21, and I had gotten married. I got married at 20. So 21, I had uh, become pregnant and I didn't realize, I didn't, wasn't really expecting that. But then I lost the baby and I suffered um, a great, uh, it wasn't very far along, but I suffered very, very deeply for the whole time I would have been pregnant. And um, in that suffering- Depression, you mean? Yeah, yeah. all the things that you grief, Rem remorse, depression. Remorse, grief, yeah. Yeah, because you were all moving forward to that. Sure. And it was at that time that I was searching a little bit more about the suffering and I wanted to know why I was to suffer, why I was so in such pain and agony and how this can, was a connecting point for me. And uh, so a friend of um, my husband and I at the Times was reading Edgar Casey. So I was like, Edgar Casey, mm. what's that? You know, well, that sounds awesome. And, you know, and he seemed real cool about it and stuff. And so there was this one day in my agony, I decided to go to the library. I was supposed to meet my cousin and she actually couldn't go. And so I decided I needed to go. I need to go there. I, I don't know why. And so then I went there and I didn't know exactly where I was going, but I was in a state of surrender. And I said, I just walked to this certain area. I didn't know what the topics were. I looked down and there was Edgar Cayce's story of mm -hmm. Jesus. And I thought, wow, that connects Jesus, what I know, you know, with, with Edgar Casey. And so it was sort of broadening my horizons. Mm -hmm. I went home and I just devoured it. I stayed up till midnight reading, reading, reading. And finally I got to this point, I was halfway through the book. And I did this thing that probably a lot of people do, open the book to the passage of something that gives you the answer you need. Mm -hmm. And so I opened up to this passage and it said, you have a great love for children because of what he gave. Uh, I forget exactly the words at the moment because I'm live, but it is as Rachel who is uh, not comforted until that which is lost is placed in her arms materially again. Hmm. And I had been reading about Rachel in the Bible, so I was thinking she really suffered and really wanted a child. So I was relating to that. And that was very personal for me. Prior to that, I had had a dream where I was literally woke up from the dream and I was having my arms out like this. And I literally had this dream that was sort of at the same time a waking dream that a baby was placed in my arms and I knew that I would have a child. So this passage that I read actually confirmed that. And that was my way of finally understanding the personal relationship that I have with God or the divine or whatever you want to call. Hmm. And, and it was so real and so palpable, it took away everything. 
And an example of how it takes away everything in that relationship for me is I had then eventually um, tried to get pregnant again. And I went to my um, obstetrician, who was the head of obstetrics at one of the major hospitals. And I had actually started losing the baby again. Mm. And um, he just said, you know, go home, put your feet up. It's probably not going to work out. And I said, oh, no. I said, God promised me a baby. And I said, and I will have that baby. He gave me an ultrasound. And certainly the baby's heartbeat was there. And that is my son. Great. That's important because I think it made me believe and understand that I was in contact through all of my experiences, through all of my suffering, that I was still, that contact wasn't broken, that I was still seen, that I was still heard, that I was, I was still known, that, that I was still answered. My prayers were still answered. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, thanks for telling that story. That's great. And it might be worth adding that, of course, it goes without saying that everybody is, you know, whether they know it or not. But there's always Absolutely. there's always that divine intelligence that's and and the various agencies of that divine intelligence that are orchestrating everything. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, but to add the purity, the innocence, and the simplicity. So, if we start adding the equation of this life, mm -hmm. and then we add to it something that you you know absolutely, you just don't doubt. There's no nobody's ever told me I should doubt. <laughs> you know, so perhaps this life is like the ashram, even though it's a nine to five life. Yeah. And regarding purity, innocence, and simplicity, uh, you know, except you be as Ill, little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that, that kind of sentiment is expressed in every spiritual tradition, that those sorts of qualities are necessary and conducive to spiritual realization. Yes. Yeah, and regarding the ashram point, there's no harm in going into an ashram for a while or, you know, going into periods of retreat, but it certainly isn't obligatory or, or mandatory. Um, as this show is evidences. I mean, there's so many people who never did that who are having profound spiritual awakenings. Yep. Yeah. I can only speak for myself, though. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, what I've experienced but, yeah. and, and that aspect of it. Because I think that, you know, that aspect, like you said, it's in everyone. So what's nice is that we can find those moments in our life. We can find those times where we were alone by the sunset. You know, where we were crying and we felt that maybe the sunset was part of our comfort. You know, so everybody has that within them. And we certainly can see it in our children. Being I'm here representing the mother, um, I have my grandchildren, you know, and they, they absolutely speak to you without those constructs. You know, like I have just recently hurt my knee and I was so worried because I didn't know what it was. And my grandson got on Skype with me and he just said, get up he just kept saying he's to get up and he like why would you say that he never says that usually mm. it's whatever they do uh -huh. he just says get up grandmom get up that was his way of letting me know i'll be okay yeah good <laughs> so 1988 so now i have uh two children mm -hmm. i had it um and what what was it another you mean in 1988 point? you did yeah yes because i had my son in um 86 mm -hmm. And then in 87, I had, and I can't verify for sure if it was near death, but it felt like a near death experience. 
with my second child. So I had what was called placenta abrupto, mm. which the placenta detaches, and I was hemorrhaging to death in my home. Uh, it was taking a while for the ambulance to get there, and I went into shock, which is interesting when you're in shock, by the way, another thing to examine where consciousness is, mm. because I could hear everything that everyone was saying, because I was losing massive amounts of blood. You know, I was answering them, which was interesting, but they weren't, that wasn't good enough because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't, wasn't using my mouth. Right. And then, you know, but they said, I told them later, I said, why didn't you, when I, you know, they got the fluids and everything, why didn't you hear me? <laughs> it was like in a way, you know, they said, we didn't hear you until we, we need to make you speak. We need to like bring your consciousness forward so we can keep you yeah. around here. <laughs> but it was very close touch and go. So um, when I was in surgery, something happened then. Um, I imagined, or I, I actually felt as if it was real that I was running through a field and it was the happiest I've ever been in my existence in a field. Hmm. And so I'm running and I'm running and, and my son happened to be with me, which is, you know, if you have a near death is your little son with you, but where is time in this? Who knows, you know? So what happened was I felt this sensation after I was completely happy. And I guess it could be like people might see this as like a heaven experience. You're running in the fields mm -hmm. in heaven. And then suddenly there was this feeling of being ripped away from the scene, just absolutely against my will, just ripped. And suddenly I'm in my body, but I'm in the middle of surgery. And so that then I started thrashing. When it, and they actually told me it took like six guys to hold me down. Wow. And I was upset and I was angry. Um, later, I saw the anesthesiologist. You were angry said, because you'd been brought back uh, from the field or what? Yes, it was the contrast. Yeah. It was the contrast. And so later I saw the anesthesiologist and he said, oh, so this is what you're like when you're not thrashing around. And I said, oh, I had this dream that I was on this wonderful place, you know, and he said, you could not be dreaming. Now, if there's anesthesiologists listening, and I've talked to them, they said that you, you can't really be dreaming when you're under, hmm. and that you woke and you felt um, the, the t tube in your throat. They said that, so there's no real, there's no way that you could have been dreaming. And I said, I was absolutely dreaming, and yeah. it was wonderful, and <laughs> you ruined it for me, but... Yeah, I'm sure you've read near-death experience stories, and, and there's so many people have these marvelous things going on when they're in comas and, you know, given up, <laughs> given up for dead, and then they come back and tell about it, and everybody tries to rationalize it away. But, you know, there's, there's just so much evidence about that, it's kind of overwhelming. So that, that next year was kind of dark before 88, so we're talking about uh, she was born July 87. In 1988, So that baby that you had the placenta abrupt of or whatever? She lived, yeah. She lived, good, 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 yeah. Yep, and so then I had two babies in diapers and bottles. So that's what makes the story come to an interesting type of experience is that, you know, there's, that first year is kind of dark for anybody who's had babies kind of back to back. Yeah, you don't get much um, sleep and all that. No, just <laughs> basic functions if you can get to them. Yeah. And... Uh, so whatever was happening then and brewing in me, I started to, that's when I made my prayer. I sort of reached out because I was not seeing anything in life um, around me. I was seeing the way man was and the way people were treating each other. It sort of came to this culmination where I was very dissatisfied with the way of the world. And I felt almost like, you know, a mother feels like a slave at that time. And I felt almost a slave to it. Mm -hmm. 
And so then I um, put out this prayer that I'm I'm done. But I prayed, you know, like everyone from time to time, oh, geez, you know, help me with this or that, but going through this. But this one, there was some kind of contact that it felt um, in a place, and it's hard to put into words, but it felt like it came from a place that was so much who I am, and it had the, the right and the, the um, integrity to ask for this one-time prayer. So it's that place that I sometimes evoke, but not always. It's like a sacred place that I won't go to unless it's like, it's like your um, call a friend card to make it light. Oh, on that quiz show? Like you get, yeah. like you get three cards. Who wants to be a millionaire? Right. That's how it feels. It's like you get three cards. I see. So you don't, you, you don't one. use this prayer trivially. It was like a, a, you get one, three for your life. I'm pulling one. I'm right. just getting, you know, making, <laughs> making up an amount. Sure. I didn't want anything in this experience other than to be the eyes and i want to say it emphatically because you know i want to feel it i want that feeling to be translated and um i want to be your mouth i want to be your ears mm. i want to be your heart it just flowed straight out of me mm. and straight to to god I didn't have a master or a guru, and even though Jesus is part of Catholicism, I didn't reach to anything. And I gave it a name, and I gave it the name of the creator of all that is, was, and ever will be, you know, something like that. I tried to make it all-encompassing and say, with, even though these words are small in comparison to that which is everything, it's that that I wish to be totally given to. And to be totally a vehicle for nice you know so i'm i'm adding some words but it was yeah. it was absolutely implicitly kind of your own version of the prayer of saint francis mm -hmm. yeah i'm very yeah. close to yeah. Saint francis and uh was considering being um what are they a lay a lay person in the order and so when you voice this prayer ardently that precipitated the awakening so then this was like in the spring of 88, I think. Mm -hmm. And so what I started noticing happening is that things that were deep within my heart and only important to me, and this I think is really pivotal as well, and it's about self-love here, is um, they started to show up in the world. Because usually now you have to think you're a mother and you're last on the plate, get the last piece of pie. <laughs> So you don't have any expectations and from the world. And this is good in a way, you know, because you're learning. I'm learning about this through my life, about expectations from the world and mm -hmm. what the world gives. And, and I surrender that world. And so then these things that are meaningful start to manifest. And they're, I can't remember the details, but I remember it was like it felt bigger than a uh, synchronicity. Can you think of an example or two? <laughs> I think the one that comes to my mind, it's just, it's just silly little things, but it would be simply pur purposeful and important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone simply said, um, you know, I've gotten tickets to that concert you've always wanted to see. And that was one of the things, actually, the concert didn't happen because they got sick. But mm -hmm. I was like, me? And it was like something inside of me never thought that I could ask for something just for me personally. Mm -hmm. And that started me on the road to understanding how this self-love precipitated the extraordinary experiences that happened. And so what, what I determined is that these synchronicities 
as I was looking back through my life, started to get bigger and bigger mm. and sort of closer and closer together. And, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so did they, it's always nice to ask for examples, so I, I, I get the sense that they became more significant than concert tickets, so bigger, m more important, <laughs> more profound things. Not necessarily. Oh. Because, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> with all love and respect. Because who knows what's meaningful to our hearts, you know? Only you know what, what really touches your heart and why. And because it's a concert ticket, it, it's just an external representation of what it is that's meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it was that particular music yeah. and it happened to be Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. And you know how that sort of takes you into a transcendental place. And I love mm -hmm. that as a teenager. And I didn't know why. I just gravitated to that. And, mm -hmm. and um, songs like that sort of probably that music really was important to me so being in a live concert would really um would take me you know take me to whatever space that was so mm -hmm. it, it isn't meaningful it is meaningful and even though it seems trivial it's meaningful in the whole grand scheme of things yeah okay. good so the synchronicities grow and grow and they actually get bigger so they're bigger in a sense that they enlarge sort of, I'll just use the word, inside of you. It's, just, it's getting louder. It's getting louder. And the way I thought to describe it is that imagine that in the culmination, the apex, which I'm getting to of a spiritual awakening, that you had A, the most profound synchronicity that you ever had, and magnify that in time, spread it out into time every minute, every moment, every hour, every day for days and days mm. at a time just out of curiosity uh, mm. in addition to the synchronicities in which things you wanted were just coming to you effortlessly did you also find that there was a sort of a resist uh, a sort of an unfulfillment of things you wanted that you probably sh weren't in your best interest or, or or were you too much in alignment to have that sort of thing Things that were that I didn't want that were displeasing. Well, like for instance, when I started this show, I, I wanted it to be. I had this idea. I'm going to do a an interview show on the little local radio station here in Fairfield, and it has a radius of about 10 miles broadcast. And okay. and it kept getting resisted and resisted, resisted. You know, why don't they want to do it? It seems so appropriate. Everybody in this town meditates. They love mm. it. Okay. And Irene saying because it was a stupid idea. And uh, and then fi finally, when I thought wait a minute, you know, let's get this out on the internet, make it a bigger thing. Then it started getting all this support and, uh, you know, and, and f success. Um, so it, the desire was there. It was just not, it was just a little bit misaligned, you know, what I was, uh, my, my concept of it was just in, inadequate. Yes. No, not at this point. Mm -hmm. There's no resistance at this point. But, but I mean, back in 88, when, when you were saying prior to this shift. Correct. Yeah, that's, yeah. What I mean, that's what I meant at this point where I'm talking about in 88. There was no resistance. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. So anyway, um, for the first time, um, and, you, and I have to preface this by saying that, you know, as a mother with two, now they're one and a half and two and a half, you can't get out of the house. I, I'm being, I hope I'm not being too redundant with this, but I have to preface the mother part of it. I think and there's a lot happening? of mothers listening who will be able to relate. Yeah. Oh, God bless you all. But anyway, um, there's real, there was really no way for me to get out. And with all due respect, respect my um, ex-husband has passed away. Mm -hmm. And um, he was not wanting me to go anywhere. Mm. 
probably because he didn't want to do anything to <laughs> that I was doing. It's like, that's crazy. Who wants to do that? Yeah. Um, and he worked all day and that was enough for him. So, Well, you couldn't get out of the house. I started to see things that were going on outside and I noticed that there was this like adult education class in the new consciousness. So I was like, oh, wow. So I had a little bit of time for myself. So I like very, very cautiously, could I, could I possibly do this class? It's six weeks exploration. I'm thinking Casey and things like that. And I thought, um, and this is about in September, October now in 88. And so my awakening was in December timeframe. So I, um, I, quietly asked my husband, I said, if I put the kids to bed, if I do every possible thing and it's only, you know, whatever it was, $50 and uh, I'll be gone from seven to nine and I'll be home. And so we came to an agreement. And so there I learned a little bit more about chakras. It was a very, very basic introduction. You know, there's all ages. But in there was this woman that I was compelled, drawn to her and I didn't understand. And she was an older woman. And she just had her eyes on me and I don't know what it was. And I just, I was so afraid and so timid, but finally I let her know. I said to her, I feel like I love you and I don't even know you. <laughs> I'm, she says, I, I said, I think about you all the time. And so she said the same about me. Mm -hmm. And so she said, you know, I go to this healing group and this in this healing group, um, I asked what this was too. I was curious, what is this strong, compelling thing I'm feeling with this lady? And so she said that her, whoever ran the group and was the facilitator and had the ability to see, you know, mm -hmm. said that, uh, oh, because she's a gem to God or mm -hmm. something like that. But first she didn't want to tell me that. She said, I'm not going to tell you what he said because I don't want you to get a big ego. And I said, oh, please, please <laughs> I need something. Somebody give me something that's good about myself. And um, so she finally said it, and I contemplated that. I'm a gem to God. And when I say that, I don't mean me apart from anybody else in the world. But because I was so contracted in, into myself as not worthy or teased a lot through, you know, you just, you start to develop this belief about yourself. But it was that contact with the possibility of being absolutely loved and absolutely special in some way that I wasn't aware that I think was an important part of opening this, this, this doorway to um, the heart between myself and the divine into unity. Nice. <laughs> Great. So, um, oh. <laughs> any more preludes up to the, <laughs> the 88 awakening thing? <laughs> no, I hope everyone's on the edge of their seat. Yeah, the, the popcorn hope. is being consumed in massive quantities. Wouldn't that be fun, yeah. <laughs> okay, so 88 in September and then October. I can't remember exactly as it started to happen, but at the time my cousin and I were, we were studying herbals a little bit, trying to find natural ways to help ourselves. We lived in the farmlands of New Jersey out in the Pine Barrens. Oh. And so I tried to get a lot of things natural and, um, but it was at the time that our lives joined and she had children and she lived in the same area, but we were speaking more. So she joins me in this experience of this awakening. And if she didn't, I, without having any context, I would have thought, tried to wonder what it was that was happening to me. Mm -hmm because prefacing it, I didn't know that anyone else in the world had this experience. I didn't know anyone would want this experience or try to have it. You know, it was so simple. 
And so the awakening was just starting to happen where I was having these experiences of, I guess, the our, our bodies, our vibrations were, like I said, that was getting more like synchronistic. And you and your cousin. Feeling this, yes, we were feeling, we were giving it words like communion and we were feeling like sort of elevated and sort of mm -hmm. high and this, you know, like our hearts were racing a lot and we both knew it was God, you know, but we didn't know what was happening. And then we're in the midst of taking care of our children and everything. So we started to, from time to time, call each other. And it, it was getting so heightened that every time we talked to each other, it would, it would get even more heightened, you know, and then we would have to get back, hang up and get back to what we were doing. It started to be internally broad and um, immense and consuming, but I could speak to her and I would say today I felt like I was walking this path that Jesus walked. I felt like um, I was going through some kind of purification and I don't know what it means and she said exactly what I felt and you know so we kept conferring and it was all happening simultaneously which I had no idea that anything could happen. I don't even know if anybody's had simultaneous awakenings in ashrams or anything. I have heard stories of, of people who are connected with one another. Like there were two sisters mm -hmm. on my on my TM teacher training course who would have remarkable experiences, and they would, they were, even though they were living in different rooms in the in the place and everything, they they would come down to dinner or whatever, and they had both been going through the same thing. So some people are connected like that. <clears throat> yeah. So so here we get to this time now where I begin to um, sort of hear within myself, hear and know what's happening. I hear and know whatever my contact is with God. And it's a different voice than any voice I've ever heard. And I want to describe this and it makes me emotional. It feels like when you hear this voice that everything in you is satisfied. The body quiets, the mind quiets. Every level that needs some kind of satisfaction, pain disappears. You just become immersed in this absolute fulfillment, you feel completely satisfied, completely fulfilled. And so these kind of things were, and you're just drawn to it and it expands, it even expands into your everyday life and everything that's happening becomes a miracle. You can see that all of life is perfect. Is it an actual voice speaking English or, or are you speaking mm -hmm. kind of metaphorically here? Well, you understand it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes a word would come that was meaningful and impactful, but it was more like, mm, gosh, the language of, of the divine. It's, it's, um, it's a knowing understanding. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing. It's, a, it's one whole complete concept that you understand beyond words. I guess that's how I would put it. And it, it was so... It, it evoked such peace and stillness. It took care of all the fears, any fears that I might have had. It, uh, <laughs> trying to describe it again, <laughs> yeah. again, and yeah. Although I, I have to tell you that I haven't told anybody this, and maybe four or five people in my entire life. So, so now I'm telling everybody. Your husband and a few people. Yeah. Yes. So um, let's try to drill into it a little bit more to, yes. so that people can get yeah. a clear understanding. I just you, need to take a breath through it. Yeah, you take a breath and I'll ask you a question or two. 
so, so far what I've heard you say, qualities like the silence and the peace and so on are typical of people's descriptions of awakening because they say, well, my mind became completely silent and you know, I just felt like this absolute stillness and things. And, uh, but hearing a voice is not so typical, that, so we, we need to elaborate on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, and usually when people talk about a spiritual awakening, they, they discuss, you know, well, I, I realize my true mm -hmm. nature. I realize I'm not just this individual, but I am mm -hmm. that. I am that, you know, mm -hmm. I, am, I am pure consciousness. I am being. I am pure existence or whatever. Um, okay. So they, they speak in that kind of terminology. Yeah. I got something. So okay, good. I, I didn't know what that was either. So I, what I did is I saw through the church... Um, they call it in Catholicism interlocution. Have you ever heard that word? I have heard, but please define it. That's just the term for what I said. It's sort of like a dialogue. That's mm -hmm. what it becomes. It's like a dialogue. Um, oh, let's see. With, with whom? The divine. It's sort of like if you imagine some of the saints and how they wrote. This is how I understood mm -hmm. it. It's like they were making this connection and it was flowing and it wasn't coming through their mind. There was a dialogue. You know, there was an inquiry, and then there was this beautiful dialogue that was unfolding, but the unfolding satisfies at all levels, and it sort of exudes, and you want to express it, and you want to write it, and mm -hmm. um, because I didn't have a place to put this, I started writing, because my husband didn't want to hear about it, just, you know, was wanting me to get busy, <laughs> to take care of things. Yeah. So it became very, very internal, except for the times I talked with my cousin. Mm -hmm. And it still gets to a greater epiphany because what happens is um, I start to see and notice that, um, and I didn't have experience with my third eye, but that it was throbbing. And that if I was speaking to anybody and I heard some element of truth that was at its pure level, and it would have to come from the heart, that I would almost want to grab my head because it would just feel like it was throbbing out of my head. Mm. So I only had also my mother to discuss this, and she had had a mini awakening with, but she didn't understand the eastern part of it. Okay, chakras so, and all. Yeah. Yeah. So I was still struggling with having some kind of person to help me navigate at the same time taking care of the the children and the family and. Um, you know, and also this was fulfilling. Anytime I was sort of like, where do I go outside of myself? What was inside would come and fulfill that and teach me and broaden me and satisfy me and love me. And the love became so great that, you know, I describe it in one of my poems as just a mere drop of the love that's available in that ocean. And if I had one inkling more of it, I would explode. Hmm. It's just beyond any possible thing that even the amount of everything you experience in love in your life compiled and intimacy and it's much just a tiny drop of that. It's like, and so along the journey, of, even with the love, it, it felt like this voice kept saying, kept coming and, and, and it's the same time I had this choice, you know, that I could sort of say yes or no to it. I was still in that phase and, and I would, you, it's like you're saying to it, I would always say, stop because it was so extreme um, love that it felt explosive that I would say stop but don't stop <laughs> can you do that <laughs> you know something like that can yeah. you do something like that so it's like can you moderate it <laughs> tone it down a little so you know and at that time I would just say stop but don't stop treat me with it perfectly which was doing anyway it's perfect anyway 
Was it hampering your functionality in, in any way as a mother, as a person? Were, were you know, you're able, no. I mean, sometimes you hear of people going into ecstasies where they just kind of fall yes. on the floor and happen. they're unconscious or something because they're so oh. drunk with the divine, you know? Well, the ecstasies became, started to happen as a phase of it too. Um, and they happened while, I, my example is I was putting toast in the toaster <laughs> and then I was having ecstasy. Mm. And so my kids were there at the table getting ready to get their food and I guess they're chattering enough that they don't realize mommy saying, oh, you know, just I had, you, there was nothing you could do that could contain the voice, but the, you know, I had to let out a, an ecstatic cry. So yeah. I was letting out ecstatic cries. <laughs> through the day while I'm making toast. And thank God I had such simple routine life because, you know, when you, you know, I've heard some interviews too, where people say that it's hard to function, Yeah. you know, but at least I had routine. It's like, you know, you don't have to think about when you're driving to work, you know, where you're going, you don't have to look at what you're doing. So that routineness and the simplicity and the beauty of my children really kept me grounded. They keep you grounded. And I have to say that 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 age they were absolutely in tune with this mm. and some of the things the epiphanies that would happen for example it was a hot day oh where were we i know we weren't this was further along but um because this lasts for years though it's though it's a two-week period where it's absolute communion 24 7. i had a two-week period mm -hmm. of this and it still includes other things that i haven't mentioned yeah well, but we'll, for example we'll my daughter, um, I guess I was having some kind of um, inner touching at the moment, and I had them a lot even through the years, um, though they did span out in time. But my daughter would come over and just start washing my feet, huh. and I would start crying. Wow. You know, it was like a way for the outer environment, the outer world, the purity in the environment to come back and touch me and say, this is valid, you're valid, or whatever it is that I felt that needed attention. Hmm. So you're kind of getting signs from the environment, um, kind mm -hmm. of a, what, what would be the word, sort of confirmations. As confirmations, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And even small children, like for... I remember that uh, from Carlos Castaneda, actually. There was something where they were, Don Juan and, and Carlos were discussing something, and then the tea kettle went off or something and uh, and Don once said the tea kettle agrees <laughs> yeah and I thought of um, I know I've talked about Catholicism a lot but this was heavy in my life at that time um, you know like G I think Jesus said if, if I don't say who I am even the the rocks and the trees and everything will speak it mm. and that's just that that exact place that I was the place where I am knows that I am and so it knows that everything else in its environment is in the same place with you. There's, you know, I had to break it down, but there's no separation between that state and the state around you. So everything is speaking the same language. Everything is that knowing, that understanding, everything. And so when I look further into that, even just walking out into my front yard at one point, I looked at a leaf and that as I saw into that leaf, I saw its structure, its molecule. I saw, um, I felt the love that made it. I felt its integrity. I felt its um, beauty and perfection and the majesty of, uh, of, of um, how special it was. And I remember peering into it and feeling like, you know, in the movie Ghost, where he goes through the door where he's trying to put his hand 
through the door yeah. and he goes Patrick Swayze right. and he starts to see like the the wood structure and he's like Ugh, you know you yeah. know that uh -huh. um, it's kind of like that it was kind of like that like I'm looking at this leaf and I'm seeing it's I guess I'm not um, subatonic structure or you know uni universal fabric yeah, yeah. Well, that's and really I, cool yeah. I pulled back because I felt like it felt like if I Kind of like Patrick Swayze, because when I saw it, I was like, "That's a good example." Mm -hmm. I felt like. Did you see if the went... interview with Bruce Joel Rubin a couple weeks ago? By the way. No, but I'll. He was the screenwriter for Ghost. I interviewed him about two or three weeks ago. Oh my god. He, he won the Oscar for it. Oh wow. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to get you off track. That's okay. I thought maybe but that's it, why it, you it, thought it, of Ghost, but. No, I just that scene was um, an extraordinary way. Like, and you know, when he's getting into the wood, he, the fabric of the wood, he sort of. You know, and the idea was to, to get through that for yeah. him. But for me, it felt like if I went into it, that I would never, I would lose myself completely. Yeah. Was that just the initial reluctance or hesitancy? I mean, have you since acclimated and adjusted and you can allow yourself to... It was just know, an experience. Yeah. I mean, well... It was, it was just an experience and it was an awareness, but it had um, all the components of something that would be long lasting. It's like these experiences sort of burn themselves into you that you can tap into it because it's monumentous and magnanimous enough that it translates through your life. It's like, I can, I can remember all of that. I don't see that now. Mm -hmm. I don't need to see that now. That's an but interesting I, point. I understand it. No, that's an interesting point. Let's, let's dwell on that for just a second. Okay. I've heard people discuss this also, where you'll have some really profound experience and it's like that's all you need. You don't need to sort of have that profound experience 24-7. It's like you extract the juice from that experience just having it for as long as you have it and then you've got yeah. that under your belt, so to speak, and you move on. But it taught you what you need to know about that particular thing. Well, you don't want to lose yourself in it. I, I didn't want to lose myself in it. It was like, okay, that's there. If at any time ever that my consciousness needs to explore that, right. I can do that. Because you develop that muscle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I think what was happening, and here's another way to describe it, you could describe it, is that I was creating, and I'll just use the word portal. There was a portal being created, and mm. I guess that's chakras opening up, which I learned later. So this portal, this entry into this place that there's communication, there's understanding, grand understanding and knowing of the absolute. And absolute was a big word for me. And it still is, it's a way to encompass. Like I, words were so important to me. If I got one word that I can just reflect on what is, and people could do that with the absolute, they use it, I've seen it. It's, it's a grand way to describe it because it's inclusive of everything. Were there many such things and the leaf was just a case in point? I mean, ha, ha, were there like hundreds of little epiphanies and you just ca kept um, metabolizing each one and continuing? If on? you modulate it back, then you can see it sort of like where you see yourself. I wrote a poem that I'm watching the bugs flying in my yard, but they're dancing, but no one sees that. Yeah. And I wrote this poem that actually got published and it ends with, it sort of ends with this, oh my gosh, the grass, it's growing all the time so fast and we don't see it. And yet I am the grass. Mm -hmm. It ends with, I am, you know, all yeah. of that. So you, you have that experience without going into subatonic optonic, uh, structure, but you, um, you're sort of um, interfacing, you're interfacing with 
the reality that's mostly not seen, that's mostly, you know, it comes out in poetry and art. And you understand some deep level of where that comes from. And if I was like, you know, Deepak Chopra, I could probably tell you this, what I saw, but oh, it, was a, it was enough. I think uh, <laughs> Deepak Chopra would be a little bit envious of some of your experiences. <laughs> and, and you actually, you know, you may not quite have his gift for gab, but I think you're very articulate and you're explaining this stuff very well. Oh, thank you for the <laughs> affirmation. I appreciate it. And, and what you're saying here actually really fascinates me because I often... I find myself dwelling on this all the time, of uh, just um, how incredibly miraculous the everyday or ordinary, you know, as we call it, everyday ordinary reality is, and we take it for granted. We're sort of, look at this cup or something, and if you could actually see what's going on here, and what an immensely complex bundle of intelligence this is, you know, on every single molecule and every single atom and the whole thing is just like this living, breathing impulse of intelligence and what to say of a cup, I mean a ladybug or a, a dog or anything else, There's, <laughs> we're, we're kind of swimming in this ocean of intelligence and every one of his expressions is, is miraculous and yet we just kind of go through our day not really appreciating that and, and I think if we could fully appreciate it all the time we'd be unable to function because we'd be so thunderstruck but well that's that's yeah, it yeah <laughs> that's it and and you are and and I'm going through my day like that and I'm having ecstasies and one of the ecstasies during the toast experience was the formation of the universe and this is really interesting and pivotal to me too and probably will be is that I was being sort of uh, fed this clump it's a mm, like a clump of information that has to do with the how the entire universe was made hmm. and I can't remember and I remember thinking what am I going to do with this you know and the kids are right at, sit right below me eating and I'm like what what's going to happen what why why is this important in my life you know yeah. and um but what I and then there would be this sort of wave of understanding where I said it is it is for it is for my dispensing and in my time interesting and it, and it comes with this all it really does with this all of like a like a boom not a you know there's sort of this boom you know like the god presence you know like you've heard i i think i've heard i've heard about several interviews and i've heard um on backup and i heard one person say it it's sort of this reverberating awesomeness that's just has this quality that um it just feels like it's got to be God kind of feeling. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's just, you just stand still. And it's like, even I thought, you know, even if you were like absolutely out of your, out of this type of touch with what I'm experiencing, and perhaps you're engaged in criminal activity, it would just stop you dead. Like maybe like Paul and, you know, On the road Bible. to Damascus. Yes, yeah. it just stops you in your tracks. And at the same time, it absolutely loves you for what, you are, aren't, will be, weren't, anything, everything. It's absolutely loves you. And I remember feeling like when you get that kind of love, and you probably have had it in relationship um, with your special someone, you want to just say, I just love you immensely. You don't know how to give back that kind of love. And so you muster it up and you just want to return it back to that mm -hmm. divine that's, that's fulfilling you. And the minute you do that and you say, you are the most awesome, and this happened a lot, you are the most awesome, you are the most beautiful, amazing, 
I, I, the gratitude that I have for you and the, 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 the divine is immense. And then you let it go and it comes back to you and says, you are the most amazing, the most awesome, the most beautiful, my creation, my child. And, and then you're weeping. <laughs> and this is like the cycle of this all day. And as a matter of fact, my husband at the time, very grounded, very 3D, very, but go to church on Christmas maybe. <laughs> you know, he's like, are you having a love affair? And I said, I absolutely am. <laughs> but it is not with a man. <laughs> it is not with anyone human. And it is with everyone human. That's beautiful. I got goosebumps all over my body while you were saying that. Um, and it, remi it reminded me of some Sanskrit phrase. I can't remember the Sanskrit, but the English translation of it is, Thy gifts, my Lord, I surrender to Thee. Yes, and there's so much even in the look, you know, after you say it, this look that we have, it transfers it to us. I just want to jump ahead a little, but there was a lady that came into my life that helped me with the Eastern esoteric nature of this because I needed someone to talk to, mm -hmm. someone to help me understand what, was, what I was going to do with all of this and because I didn't know about it. And so she took me to a Jungian meeting. She would take me little places here and there. Who was this? this is was like, I'll tell you about her in a minute, my friend Kathy. But she oh, okay. actually took me, I just wanted to bring this in because it fits. Um, she took me to a Jungian meeting and, and, uh, and she was around my mother's age. She was a helper and friend of my mother's, a helper in my, my um, navigating. Um, and she would slowly introduce me to things to, to show me that we can find some similarities in some things that in people that are out there and what they're doing. And at the end of the meeting, there were three or four of these PhDs and psychologists talking to me. And I was talking about a piece of music that was on the piano stand that I was reading and feeling. And they're saying it, they were examining me. They're like, look, it's like it's coming from her eyes. Hmm. So I was like looking at them, I'm like, they can see it, and this is how they see it. They see it is coming through the eyes. What was coming through your eyes? Whatever this love and this translation uh -huh. of this uh, piece Beethoven wrote or something that I was reading and expressing, and I play the piano, so I was expressing what I felt, but from this God point of view. And so they were seeing it and feeling it, and it's like they almost wanted to see where it was coming from. Hmm. And for them, it seemed that it was coming from the eye. So perhaps like um, Darshan or something. Cool. But I didn't know it was Darshan. I just... Was it, they say the eyes are the windows of the soul. You know? That's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I thought when they said, well, the eyes are the window to the soul. Okay. Yeah. Simple. Hmm. So um, there's something we haven't... We've, we've kind of been... We haven't quite congealed the, this whole thing yet. I don't know if we, we'll be able to, but you've been describing this beautiful awakening and various facets of it, the experience with the leaf, the experience with the youngians, the experience, you know, with what you described as that love affair and so on. But if, if you had to define awakening, let's say, as you know it, as you experience it, or have experienced it, in a sentence or two, if you had to sum it up, you know, put it on a business card, <laughs> how would you define it? I would have to say what I had when I was 21 was an awakening. An awakening. And that was the word that was used. This may bring an awakening to you like no other may. This is written in that book, the mm -hmm. Edgar Casey book. Right. And that was an awakening. And this, in my perspective. This meaning the 88 thing. The 88. And continuing I, thereafter. I had, 
Yes, um, I just want to say this because I think it's pertinent to how I see things. I asked for a word for what was happening and I got transformation and it felt like a rebirth. And I knew that I was reborn. Mm -hmm. I absolutely knew. So I can only use descriptions, like two sentences, I'm not sure. But I would say that it is from what I've seen in other people, it has these markers um, that I'm talking about in stories and pieces of my life and experiencing this. And there's still a couple more markers that, that still, it still crescendos. And it goes to unity where I knew that God and I were one. I, I wasn't even knowing it, I was it. And it got to that point where it was a struggle to say, I would say Jane, when I would talk to some people or this one. And I wanted to say that. So I think these markers are important. You wanted, wanted to say to this say, one or you wanted to say Jane? I, I wanted to say something other than me. Because it seemed so I limiting. Wanted, yeah, right? I wanted it because I was in that all-inclusive nature that felt like, you know, I'll, I'll use a movie, Buddy the Elf, I'm in love and I want everyone to know it. I'm one and that's the way it is. Yeah. We're one, you know, and we don't know it. And um, so there are these these absolute markers that I think that my whole entire um, speaking to you highlights these absolute markers mm -hmm. that um, like I said Paul like you you're you're stood still you cannot move mm -hmm. and it envelops your life in such a special loving way that it compares to absolutely nothing that you could ever fathom and muster in your life experience, I have no doubt of that. So would it no be doubt. fair to say that the whole nature of your life, ever since 88 at least, has been one of wholeness, oneness, unity, an abiding realization, but it's hard to describe that because it's kind of universal, it's kind of amorphous in a way. And so when you try to describe it, it's easier to describe specific experiences such as the leaf or or you know this or this but that that doesn't do justice to it yeah you know i love you i love listening to that and at the same time it it, it sort of feels so contracted to try to limit it yeah. to try to limit it into a, a a tiny little understanding because the whole expression of what you're asking was in the moment when you had goosebumps and tears right that's where it lives mm -hmm. it's it's in in that absolute intimacy yeah. that's only that lives with you all the time and knows you and even when you're separate from it it's there for you and mm -hmm. I was I was um, meditating before um, we came together for this meeting and I was recalling a time in my meditation and so I can sort of go through this portal into the space as I dialogue through my heart. And I was thinking of this time when I was having pain after the experience, emotional pain, because coming back into this, slowly coming back into this reality is stark and painful. It's like, you know, when you come out of people who have near-death experiences, it's the same kind of thing. It's right. very painful and stark. I would get up in the morning, my husband would get up first and then the children and I would get up before all of them. And it was dead winter and cold and I would walk in the stillness, in the cold, when no one else was out and I would walk in through the cemetery in my backyard, behind the backyard. And I could feel what I felt 
on the inside, on the outside, in the crispness of the snow and in the marker graves with different lovely things on them and yet this absolute stillness, but seeing life like people putting little flowers and knickknacks and things. And it's sort of, what it did is it, it, it made the balance of what I was feeling inside equal on the outside. Mm. And so there was no separation between the inside and the outside. And in that perspective, that is, it's with me in the pain. It's absolutely there. Speaking of St. Francis, and I love Brother, Son, Sister, Me, and I watched that one million hundred lots of times. <laughs> so many elements in that movie are, are very telling. And if someone wanted to try to discover it, watch it, and listen to the music of the Blessed Donovan, those simple musical melodies and those simple words, you know, day by day, stone by stone, if you just say those, those, that's your mantra to it, day by day, stone by stone, in my heart, you know, all of this, it's not words, it's, it's, it's the, what translates, it's the love, it's what you're feeling when we talk, it's, it's the absolute, touching the absolute, and it isn't a concept, it's a living, breathing, loving you. That's beautiful. And I kind of love the way you're putting it in your own terminology, in your own way of expressing it. You know, there's so many people that I interview and who talk about this stuff that are basically using words that everyone is using and that they've yeah. gotten from Ramana Maharshi or from various things. And I tend to do that too. I have my own terminology, but it feels like you've kind of evolved your own expression of it from your own heart, you know, from your own experience. And what's pivotal there in that mm -hmm. is that um, I wasn't directed to be around people. Speaking of the word purity, you know, think of those monks, I'm thinking, that go, you have to go 500 million feet up into the mountains through, <laughs> you know, and if you survive that, then you're there. Well, I was um, kept from people. And so there was a pain in that because there suddenly became this stark separation. Suddenly my husband wasn't the love of my life. He was a man. Hmm. He was a consciousness that had its way of seeing its clouds and its lenses and he wasn't seeing the fullness like I was seeing so he wasn't with me and thank God I had my cousin who was with me she was what saved my life because if I didn't and, and, and believe me I didn't know that anyone on the planet this you're so immersed in this and so and I had no reference and it was it was almost frightening because I thought Oh my God, what does this mean? Please don't make me a saint or anything like that. I think we talked about that in my little pre-interview. Um, I just was like, you know, why me? Why would this happen to me? And I'm just a simple lady, this living this very simple life. And, um, and, it, and it came to me that reverberating um, God voice that said, it is in the uncluttered mind that I come. Nice. It is in the un, I forget what word, I'll use tethered heart, I'll just say that, uh -huh. something like that, that I live. Mm. And then I, I could accept that, I could accept that, I'm like, okay, well, I could own that, because <laughs> I'm ordinary, and I'm simple, and I don't know what's going on, and you chose me, and also... In that beautiful purity, like when you see your, you know, newborn children, you want to, you start them out and you want them to be absolutely protected and uh, 
you don't want the bad stuff to come in. Well, I was treated that way and I wasn't allowed to sort of indoctrinate in any way. And I used to just ache for that because I wanted some kind of com company and I still ache for that. And that's, it's, that's been my problem all this time is that I feel um, apart from um, everyone that I know and love because I can see where they're at consciously. And the only time I get to be, ha to have company is when someone's heart opens. Mm -hmm. When someone like, you know, when you're having goosebumps or you're having, you're crying. And then it's like this little bit of heart opening gives me that the divine is meeting divine company that I long for, that I no longer can have. Well, that, that brings, that brings up a couple earth. of things. Yeah. First of all, isn't the divine your best buddy, you know? I mean, you've always got that, right? And I, I guess you're saying, well, it's nice to have human company too who can appreciate this. Uh, but on that note, um, you know, within a week or so, 5,000 people will have listened to this. And I'm sure that there are many people who will very much resonate with what you're saying and who could be your best buddies if, if they happen to live in Rochester, or but, but who may want to reach out to you through Skype or something. You might end up establishing some very beautiful friendships. I mean, I can think of just mm -hmm. a half a dozen people off the top of my head whom I've interviewed who, you know, could be really good friends of yours if, if you connected yes. with them. And I'd be happy to help you make that connection. Um, yes. But I, um, I love a couple of them already. I contacted one, Dave, uh, David. Yeah, I just. Oh, D David. Yeah, he's great. Buckland. I just, yeah, I just completely feel like, yeah, I want to just hug him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a wonderful guy. You probably want to, too, right? I have hugged him, actually. <laughs> he's a great guy. You um, can just, yeah, you can just tell. I mean, so that's just, that's just an example of someone who has an open heart. And it's interesting because sometimes, like, I'll go to, like, a little satsangs. We're involved in some satsang. Mm -hmm. And there's this one lady, and she's so open. And she just runs over to me and puts her head. She's the only one. Mm -hmm. And puts her head right into my chest here and just buries no inhibitions. Right. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I mean, she feels, it seems like she needs that, yeah. you know, but I need that too. Yeah, that's sweet. Out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference this year, they had a new thing where on your badge, you could have a little sticker put on that said, huggable. <laughs> so if you're, if you're, you know, so everybody's walking around with these huggable badges. I don't want to make it sound too hippy trippy, but <laughs> a lot of hugging tends to take place at that thing because the, the heart value gets so enlivened with everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Now you've alluded to your, and feel free to interject anytime if there's something that I'm not thinking to ask you that you, you want to say. I mean, we're just flowing along here, but oh, sure. uh, you've alluded to your cousin a few times. And when we spoke a few months ago, when we were talking about doing this, you mentioned that your, you know, you and your cousin kind of had these parallel awakenings, mm -hmm. but that your cousin didn't get it kind of accepted or supported in the same way you did and ended up running into some difficulties. So. Yes. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit if you don't think your cousin would mind. And um, yes. And also, I think the very fact that the two of you synchronistically had had this transformation take place is, is interesting. Yes. And let me just, uh, there's one thing that I'll say before I talk about her, uh -huh. is that um, though I had her to, I had, the, I had God, my best friend, but I had, um, <laughs> to say it lightly, I did have some human interaction that way with my cousin. But because so many people in my family didn't understand this new way that I was or speaking 
this way that I was speaking or what was happening because people in my family knew what was happening. They knew, they knew something, something was happening. They knew something was happening. They couldn't understand it. But my husband got a little frustrated with because then when it starts to get into the family, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you about And this is your previous husband who, who is no Correct. longer with us, right? Yeah. Correct. I said, fine. I said, I will go to a psychiatrist and I will tell him everything and I will let him be the determining factor. You know, because a lot of people can just sum it up as it's crazy. It doesn't, that, come on. And so I did. Mm. And I kind of put my life on the line there because being somebody who's just going through this, you're quite raw and uh, like a newborn. Yeah. And I'm putting myself in the face of this man. That's kind and, of a crapshoot, too, because there's so yeah. many different types oh, of people who are, you know, mm -hmm. licensed psychiatrists. Yes. You're taking your chances. Oh. Yep. And so he just, I just said, you know, I don't know what it is. I said, but when I speak to people and I don't even have to say the word God, this is how simple I was at 26. I said, but um, they start crying and... Um, you know, maybe I was just talking about their uncle or a tie that, that was given to them. And I didn't know, you know, but somehow it opened their heart. And so I was telling him a lot of the things I went through. And he just said, I have nothing to say except that you're very wise. Oh, nice. So then I went back with the report. <laughs> like, <laughs> Got all right. The stamp of approval from the psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, but my husband's take was um, uh, crap happens. I won't say the bad word. Right. Uh, and... Um, Mine was everything happens for a reason. Yeah, that's a, that's we an interesting thing. I mean, views. that's very good. I mean, there's that popular bumper sticker, you know, and um, I think Forrest Gump coined it when he was running mm -hmm. and stepped in something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're kind of a movie buff. You know, it does imply randomness and arbitrariness and and a sort of a cold mechanistic universe, whereas. Mm -hmm. Everything happens for a reason implies that, you know, what I was saying earlier, we're swimming in an ocean of intelligence and that nothing is arbitrary or capricious. Yes. On behalf of my cousin, though we haven't had a lot of time to speak because she's had a very rough time in her own personal life with health and her children's health and her family and lots of things. But I did call her and ask permission, she said, you know, to talk about and some of the things that I wanted to share. So she has given me, I have a little outline over here that I'm looking at. Okay. But, you know, she did, she did go through this um, and it did turn out different, you know, but the first thing that she said is, what is the moral of the story? Like for her, it's like, what was the outcome of it? And she said, the outcome is, and I said, well, what is the moral story to you? And she said, not to have faith in any person that it's all God, take the good and leave the bad. And things like that, you know, of that nature. But she verified all that we went through. And for her, there was a more traumatizing aspect to it because my mother had some type of awakening and openness. And her mother, though she's my mother's sister, she did not. I want to be careful what I say about people, you know, sure. when I'm talking about them. And so this, there was more fear and her husband was quite as quite fearful because she was having ecstasies that were somewhat uncontrolled, that, yeah. were, un that were very uncontrolled. Mm -hmm. And she believed that some of the things, she said she felt there was a mixture, that some of the things were not good and some were good. So huh. she felt like some was like hallucination. Mm -hmm. But the, there's a lot of mix of fear and um, trauma in her experience apart from when we were together. And what happened is it culminated, and she did want me to say that it culminated in her ecstatic epiphany being carted away to a mental institution in a straitjacket. Yeah. It's hard to give a 
pat assessment of such a thing. My, my mother went, had, I guess, what you was diagnosed as a nervous breakdown, and she started to see auras around trees, and she started, you know, feeling like she was communicating with her deceased mother and having all these perceptions. And you know, even though there was some kind of awakening taking place in some sense, she really was becoming unhinged. And um, I've been communicating with a woman in Australia who, uh, whose daughter is going through something really intense and open, she's opened up to all these subtle realms and she can't shut it down and, and she, you know, she's being sort of hounded day and night by some subtle entities and you know, she can't sleep and she can't eat. I mean, so I would just caution that not, any, not everything that might pass as a spiritual awakening is necessary, necessarily wholesome and 100% you know, great. <laughs> there could be all kinds of little bit pathological things mixed in. Um, maybe you can take it from there. Yeah, so um, what happened is we were not allowed, especially with her side of the family, they started to try to say, where's it coming from? Well, it seems to be more pronounced when she's to Jane and her together. So, mm. you know, we're going to keep her out. And so, you know, all kind of witch hunt things start happening. And mm. where is this coming from? And um, but I did get to hear, I forget how, but I would get to hear like what was going on with her from time to time, I guess through family member, family member, and back through my mom to me. But she was, um, people were getting healed in, in the presence and she was there for a couple of weeks. They drugged her up and people were getting healed. And here's this an in the men, In the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, yay. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you are. It's, yeah. it's happening. It's or even that happen. she's drugged. Yeah. So, so is it really a problem? That this happened this way or was it perfect yeah good um point. and one of the examples was there was a young teen fellow who had she said a, a swastika on his third eye and he was into satanism right. he believed in that power wholeheartedly and when he met my cousin in their group he could see and he said through her eyes and through her you know her he could see that there was a god hmm. And so he completely renounced his way and his belief. And he brought his parents to her and said, Mom, you know, Dad, this is the woman that saved me. Wow. She didn't say anything, you know, about you should, you know, follow God or anything. She right. just, just, she was just living her experience and probably articulating her connection that she had with God, you know, her divine mm -hmm. source. And there were people that were, um, very stuck, like there was a Vietnam vet who was really, really stuck that she said was instrumental. She was instrumental in, oh, I guess whatever, he just kept going through therapy, 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 and he was not unlocking from whatever he was trying to unlock from. Mm. You know, so she was at the right place in the right time, and you learn that very quickly, that you could be placed in the fire and you find that you'll never burn, and, and those kind of things happened. For example, to get off that this topic, but add to it. I was sent to the inner city with my friend Kathy, who helped me, and my mother to the Jungian meeting. And so we had to take the subway back through Philly, and it was like midnight. And I just not, I'm not a city mouse, I'm a country mouse. And I was young and 26 and girly, and uh, they were like mother types. So it was a little frightening for me. And so I was discussing in the subway, and there were lots of lovely seedy characters there. God love them. But, you know, they sort of are the type that they put in the films that make you, you worry about what your next step and move might be around them. But there was this one very tall, ominous looking fellow, and he kept, I was talking to my mom and Kathy about 
my experiences in this Jungian meeting and how it was touching my heart from my perspective. And he kept looking over at me and I'm thinking, uh oh. <laughs> Could he, he hear was, you? Could he hear what yeah. you were saying? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. we were in the subway, so it was yeah. like echoey and he wasn't too far from me. And I could see him looking and listening and I'm thinking, oh boy. And then he starts walking toward me and I thought, oh gosh, I'm done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've, or I've offended him in some way or, and he came over and the first thing he said is, I've been listening to what you said. And I was like, oh no, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, sorry. And he said, and I feel that sister. And he just, started, <laughs> he just started rolling with his, whatever he was getting, you know, if it was a transmission or something, mm. he was being fed by the Holy Spirit and he was announcing it and pronouncing it. And I was like, oh, whew. okay. <laughs> so, you know, that in itself, you know, it's a story. It's still a learning. It's a very powerful learning that it doesn't matter where you're sent. And so for me, I go wherever I need to go. And because I haven't spoken about this in 27 years to only a few people, I asked a good friend of me, I, you might know John Mosher, he's like Name is familiar. father, he, father yeah. type. I think it was in TM with you back in the day. Yeah, it's in the Rochester but area, I guess, right? He's helped us a, a lot um, yeah. with different things. So, you know, I said about going on public, what I usually like being hidden and, and in the background in my life or one-on-one -on -one or something. And so... You know, I'm uncomfortable with being out in the front. And he said, what is it that could limit, is limiting you from that? Perhaps that's what needs to happen. And I said, oh, so something's in the way. Okay, so I need to just do and go where I need to go, do what I need to do, and not think about it, not let it be my business. And that's my practice, is to get out of the way and not let it be my business. After the long haul of integration and uh, weaning off of this epiphany experience in 88 because there is a weaning mm -hmm. there is definitely a weaning process and there's after that and there's a depression and for my cousin she was in a year-long dark depression where i was moving through it a little bit more i was able to make contact with this lady kathy is another important having that person that key person that is well-versed. This, this is a lady who um, understood Eastern philosophy. She's somebody who was able to connect herself with the spirit. She has a rich spiritual life. And so, for example, um, when I first met her, she was absolutely accepting. And I was afraid because a lot of people are like, what do you, what do you mean? Or what do you mean you're awakened? What do you mean you're reborn? And what is this? What do you mean you're one? This is that that's like heresy. Anyway, so <laughs> you know, but she was like, So I'm so fortunate to meet you today. She embraced it and she started me with a good book. And it was neat just how perfectly I would say the divine allowed her to filter in purely to me just what I needed at the right time. Mm. And it was hind's feet in high places. It's an allegory. She she started me with an allegory, so there were no names there's just did you ever read that or no i haven't heard that? of it so it just talks about joy and love reaching the mountain on the apex and it's about their journey and so i could find what i was experiencing in that in a very soft like a newborn like a storybook yeah. and it soothed my soul as i transitioned from that place in this 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 expanded place and this all loving all knowing place into this world that has rebellion and cruelty and um harshness and its levels of consciousness that filter in front of what its heart really is. Yeah. I just want to loop back to your cousin a little sure. bit, um, just that we were talking about how awakenings are not always 100% um, integrated. They can, there can be some kind of you know, actual 
imbalance or, or patholo mm -hmm. pathology going on. But mm -hmm. by the same token, I think a lot of times, I think there are probably a lot of people locked up in, in psychiatric hospitals who mm -hmm. have had genuine awakenings and nobody understood them. And this ties right into what you're saying now. It's so important to have somebody who understands you and who kind of affirms what's going on. Um, so I just want to kind of balance out the thing I had said previously. But uh, let me ask you, so how, how is your cousin doing now? So when I talk to her, um, and like we've, we rarely have in 27 years had time to talk about this, mm -hmm. and I moved away, and it seems like it's still taboo in, in her family. It's like we'd have to go somewhere, but it doesn't really allow for that. Yeah. So um, Seems like she's old enough to be her own girl now. Yeah, yeah, so she is very uh, faith-filled person. Mm -hmm. And the struggles that she's had to deal with in her life, she has a very, they can't cure her daughter. She has a very difficult disease. There's no cure for it, so she has to live. Like, they don't know how she keeps living. I mean, she's just, we'll see. Yeah. She's nearly 40, thank God. But anyway, she has that and several other things. But she said what it gave her, she said, is the strength to endure the next 27 years of her life. And people say, how does she do this? How is she still loving? How is she still patient? And she isn't always patient, but there's some embodiment of patience. I mean, patience, I think, in people, burn, it, it burns into you through life. When you have kids, you have to be patient or whatever. You know, you have to learn patience. But there's this, there's this patience that comes with it that lets you see that everything is unfolding in some other plan that's way beyond yours. And so she has that scope. And oh, she says nice. that the, the magnanimity of it translates into her life devoid of, of what happens. And, you know, there's been times in my life, though, it's been more fortunate for me that I've called on her when I've had hard times where there's a culmination of issues in the family or my children. And um, I'll call her and ask her like one thing and she'll come back. She'll get me back in line. You know, she'll just say, why not you? You know, like if I say, why me and in this situation and this calamity and you know, something like that, and then she just sets me right, you know, so it's that kind of thing. That's great. For her. Yeah. So, um, it seems you've given, a, you gave a fair amount of thought to this interview before we started doing it, which is great, and a number of times I've jumped ahead and you've said, wait a minute, we've got to cover this point first. So, what points do you also have in mind that we haven't covered yet because we've just been sort of going, you know, one step after the other as we talk? Yeah, and what's interesting is it, um, again, in, the, per, in the, the element of perfection, um, getting out of the way allows things to unfold most perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you that, you know, last night I had, and Charles calls it my husband, the last little bits of the remnants of, oh, geez, what if I don't remember, I'm not chronologically right, or, <laughs> you know, or I have a headache, or yeah. something, you know, it's like all these human things, and everybody feels that, you know, and that's just totally acceptable, but, yeah. you know, it definitely, you wrestle with it, there was some, I said, finally, I said, my soul is wrestling, and he said, you'll wake up in the morning, and you'll feel better, so there's always that, that wrestling that occurs um, as you go through your life and getting out of the way includes that. And one of the things that, in, that is naturally flows from this experience is for me is contemplation. You get to this place where you experience the divine and all you want to do is contemplate. It's like, what is it contemplating the divine navel? They say it's like, <laughs> you just 
it, it's just it's just an offshoot of it. It's all you really want to do. Um, and there's been times in my life when I've been um, in dark night of the soul where I've had been cut off for years, like from any inspiration. And that was a time when I moved to Rochester and several family members died in a row. It was like a war zone. My father, my grandmother, key people, my very special spiritual aunt all in one year. And then a year and a half later, my ex-husband suddenly died young at 48. Um, my children were still teenagers. So then I had to deal with all of that. And even in that absolute darkness, I, even if it was just a memory, because you can't feel that love at that moment you're 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 on fire with pain and grief i mean grief is a powerful process and i delved into it like i did when i walked in the snow and when i was walking by those graveyards uh gravestones and um you know feeling what that outer experience feels like and and uh Sometimes you can't even get to call the divine. You're so stifled. But those experiences are important. And those experiences are important because they give you a rapport with the people that God touches through your lives. That's what makes it easy, easier for me to know and be compassionate with people because I feel I've been there. I know what it's like. I'm just as darn human down to the blood and everything sweat and tears that you've cried and in that i mean i learned that back in the rebirth because there were at that time in the rebirth period i'm i'm crying because i'm so sensitive to anybody who's unkind i mean unkindness just felt like so visceral to me like in the face of this absolute enormous love and um and i remember i had to often turn my head because I was crying so much, and I didn't want my husband to say, "What are you crying about now?" And I wasn't—I was just crying out of epiphanies. And these were—this was years later, and and I would hear something that would console me, that would say, "And for every tear that you cry, the angels in heaven cry thousands." Hmm. Wow. And I would feel like my grief, though it felt so big, was so small to the immensity of the beings that are so much purer and see the suffering through those level of pure eyes. My pure eyes felt immensely small. My tears felt and pain felt immensely small. It's beautiful, Jane. You haven't written any books, have you? I know you have a blog. I have, um, like, uh, through the years, I have a tote full of stuff. So you've been oh. noting stuff down. Because you have a beautiful way with words. I think you could distill some of this into some books. <laughs> well, it must be time, then. Yeah. But the point you just brought out, I think, it's nice to just touch upon it again, which is that, as they say, life is, what is it? This is a Joni Mitchell song, I think. Life is for learning was one of the lines. And um, might have been from Woodstock. And in any case, uh, you know, what the point you just made is beautiful, which is that everything we, if, I mean, if, if, if it is a divine universe, if the divine is really omnipresent and is just sort of, you know, interacting with itself, and, and we are the eyes and ears and noses and stuff of that, mm -hmm. then how could, how could anything not be ultimately in our best interest? Some sort of lesson, some sort of experience that is going to add to our toolkit, uh, you know, to make us uh, more or better for others or whatever. Yeah, and so before we talked, I had this um, experience in my meditation, I think, 
is pertinent. And so what it is is that it sort of comes in the statement that God is not in the argument. That was the statement that it, it formed around. And it's like this, that when we talk about the experiences, that's when, and I think you can feel more viscerally what, what's transpiring between us when we talk about the love, when our hearts are healed, when they're open, we get out of the way. We're just like a little kid in essence that's just, Oh, you know, like you maybe when you see your loved ones after you pass and you imagine seeing them and hugging them, just that you just run into the arms of that. We're so starved from it. Um, not, you know, not everybody and not at all the time. I don't mean to categorize. I'm just trying to express. But um, that's where it is. And it's so simple that we look everywhere else. And I notice that when sometimes questions come that it seems like it closes a door. It almost closes a door on the beauty of that moment. It's like when you analyze your your child's, your newborn's first glances at you, you can't translate it. You have to just stay with it. And that's where it is. And it's so simple. And this, this world has uh, so many mechanics to it and, and thoughts and judgments and our hearts have them too. And so when you remove all of that, you have that essence that we all long for, that we all want to be with. And not only that, but for some people, it's very uncomfortable. It's too vulnerable. They are not ready to let down that guard. And so sometimes I've, I experience retaliation, you know, back in that day, you know, if I would bring something forward because the love was so transparent that, you know, it would be painful and someone would use something harsh, you know, say something harsh or push me back. And so I learned that, you know, I have to be very patient and uh, sit back with my love. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting back a, a thousand miles away and you still feel that you can translate it, but maybe not face to face or in words. You can sort of modulate how you express it. And I think that's the, the, what God does. There's a modulation. We have our own will. We have our own timing. And like I said, you know, I even cried out, modulate this love, please, because I'm going to explode, you know, and, and yet don't modulate it. Explode me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you're ready a, to be exploded. Kind of a balancing act. Yes, there's a yeah. there's a lot of paradox in that, and yeah. there is a lot of opposites hmm. in uh, in our in our world. Well, you're kind of touching on the pearls before swine principle here. You know, just you have to sort of. There's a verse in the Gita that let let him who knows the whole not disturb them who only know the part. You know, you have to sort of modulate it. You have to parcel it out according to the openness and receptivity of the listener. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, my teenager, said, Mom, what are you going to talk about for two hours? <laughs> so, well, this is something you could talk about for a lifetime. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. You, and you do. <laughs> and you do. And what could be better to talk about, you know, more interesting, more profound? Yeah, some people are talking about it when they're, ha when they're putting, you know, doing art and, and poetry and music. They're speaking it. That's this, the same language. I mean, it's like God language. What is God language? Hmm. It's just that we're having this, in an awakening, you're having this absolutely condensed experience of it. So, like, the art becomes alive, living, living art. And hmm. uh, you become living art. Your expression is living art. There are about 40 people listening or watching live as we speak, and uh, I just want to remind people that if any questions occur to you, go, you know, on, on the upcoming interviews page on BatCap, there's a form at the bottom you can type the question into, and it'll come to me here, and I'll ask Jane. 
So what is your day-to-day -day life now like now? You know, like right now, this morning, tomorrow, yesterday. I mean, how and how does your day-to-day -day life compare and contrast, if it does, with what it was when you first had that awakening in '88? I um, I am regularly contemplation, contemplating, but my life has slowed down a little bit, so that helps. Kids are growing up. You know, yeah, daughter just started college, and the others are all out and married, and mm -hmm. um, so that makes a big difference, but the contemplation has never stopped, even though you're in the mix of whatever you're doing. And define um, contemplation as you mm, are using it? I'm always learning. If I was taught learning, to, I was telling you about God, is not an argument. I'm understanding at a deep level what that means. I'm still learning and I'm still contemplating all the time. That's all that I really do and enjoy in my life. That is my life. And then what I do on the external part of my life is sort of like the karma yoga. It's like I'm going through my day and doing the things I do. But what's interesting is when you interact with people and living things, there's a difference in that quality there's almost an absolute joy that somehow we get to meet. I teach cake decorating and it's been like, why am I teaching cake decorating? <laughs> but who knows, right? It doesn't matter what you're doing. And these lovely people come and they start to open up about, because they're in this creative flow, it's a mm. creativity. And they start to tell me about their life and the hardships little by little they trust. And so there's a rapport that's built. And so the healing takes place in those interactions. And I did this, it's called a soul blueprint reading i did like a year ago it's an astrology form that only several people do in the world something you um, had done for yourself and it i had this blueprint yeah done for myself right. and so the the fella starts to tell me certain things and i said wait wait can we cut to the chase can i just tell you that i this ex i had this experience and i wanted to know why i'm so uncomfortable you know so i was con I've been contemplating my being uncomfortable for 27 years and he, and he, you know, he said it, and it, it's helped me a lot. He says, it comes with the territory, Jane. Hmm. And I said, and why do I feel like this is so hidden? Like, you just feel like you want, um, I don't know, I sort of have a very quiet, hidden life. And you would think that it would be something that would be more prevalent. So I think that from time to time. I contemplate that from time to time. And why and are you said, uncomfortable? I mean, you, I guess you sort of said, well, you know, you're a bit I'm, of an odd fish because you don't really know too many people who are on the same wavelength. Is that what you mean by uncomfortable? He said it comes with the territory. And in a way, it's sort of like this unfolding into the world. And these layers are being contemplated. The contemplation is, there could be a million examples of what, I, what I'm contemplating. But whatever it is that I'm learning and growing and reaching and, and whatever's reaching through me that's learning and growing and what I'm learning when I interact with people and through my experiences. It's everything that I contemplate, everything in my life. If I'm frustrated, why am I frustrated? Yeah. So everything sort of goes into that big pot of soup, you know, and I just keep stirring through it and stirring through it and finding myself in the center of the eye of the hurricane and back out and and finding the eye within the swirling pieces that I go into on the outside of the hurricane, attaching to that and why am I attached? And uh -huh. But so in the uncomfortability, he said, you know, sort of when you have that expanded consciousness, you're in the eye of the hurricane. And so you're wondering, you know, what if when you come back out, it's like, what? You know, it's like a whole new, it's a, that's why I call it a rebirth because then you're, you're contemplating, um, where was I and what is this now? And, 
it grows, it grows and grows, and uh, so it's just a natural uh, offshoot. Just to make sure we're clear, so when you say contemplating, so you're, you know, you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're driving, you're doing cake decoration, you're talking to some friend or something like that, but you're saying that kind of uh, inside there's always this sort of self-referral going on, this kind of self-scrutiny or this sort of probing into the... It's not, I don't mean significance in an intellectual sense, like analyzing it to death, but, but sort of like, where is the divine hand in this? Is that what you mean by contemplating? Well, a lot of things that I contemplate get, go, get used. It gets integrated. It's like digestion. Yeah. So everything that, you know, I meditated this morning and I, want, little me, I wanted to just keep quiet and just keep everything quiet so I didn't start to feel nerves or anything, uh -huh. but this beautiful divine dialogue and picturesque um, vision of when I was walking in the, um, the field. Yeah, and finally I was, I, you know, in my little folliness I say, well, I just wanted to be quiet and then I kind of get the sense, but this is important for what's to come. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's an example. Ah, so yeah. what's to come, meaning you, our conversation, yes, you, you needed to have that vision in order to be able to convey it in the conversation. This is what's want, this is what, this is how the divine is translating. So this is what's important for what I want to say. Nice. Everything is being said anyway, but in this particular moment, in this form, that's what's wanting to be said. And what's interesting is at that time, the sun, and we're in Rochester, which is very cloudy and cold and known for not having sun broke through the window and shine on me and it happens often like that and has always happened and uh, probably other people know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. it's sort of sign it's a signifier like how could the sun beam literally land right on me and just at a particularly pertinent moment yeah it's it's a way of, of showing that you the element is reaching you that element that is that all it is is reaching you yeah the, there's a whole I mean, there's a whole topic of omens, good and bad, and, and you know, the, the fact, again, that we're in, it's an intelligent universe, so even something like that, I mean, obviously it could be easily dismissed as, well, the sun's shining, because the sun's shining, but there, there's a kind of a divine timing to everything. And speaking of Ray, I had this particular experience that, in the beginning, that showed me that the sun rays, in case anybody's into this, um, I was, when I was writing and doing a spiritual newsletter, I mean, I was writing it by hand from my home mm -hmm. while the kids were sleeping. And it was a completely cloudy day and I had uh, skylights in my house. And um, I usually turned myself over, what do you want, how do you want to use me today? Mm. And um, I was thinking about going to take these, because I mailed some to people letters with newsletters to the mailbox. So I close my eyes and contemplate and meditate for what the what the divine wants to use me for in today. And I open them in a sunbeam, nowhere else, just one little tiny one, landed right on the letters on the table. Hmm. Like cool. I just put them on the table. I didn't, you know, they weren't lined up astrologically, or <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't. It, but it was lined up astrologically that that sunbeam would be in the right place at the right time, and that's what happens next. And, and you find this, that this, this happens, that each person, um, the closer you are to that, that, um, 
the place that is open to all this, that's why I'm always saying get out, I'm getting out of the way, I'm getting out of the way, is because then the nature of miracles, which is an everyday occurrence, happens and sometimes I get to witness it, you know, and sometimes I don't, but I know that it's always happening, so I get in that space as often as I can because it isn't that I, it isn't me that I serve anymore. Mm -hmm. That's another characteristic is that you no longer serve yourself. Your life is surrender and getting out of the way. And, and that's, a, I think, a big marker. And any type of ego that says that it's going to be something or teach something is in the way. And if you're giving like you're giving beautifully in your experience, it's from your heart that you do what you do. Yeah, nice. It's not to get anything. Right. Yeah. So that's what keeps people in the background, I think. That's what keeps them not putting themselves in the front, in the forefront. And I've talked to a fellow meditator of mine, friend of mine, and he said all the people that you don't see on interviews, or like he was saying, like really, you don't see them because they're not really putting themselves, they're not interested in putting themselves. They, you know, like I, it, there was times when people were building things like churches and stuff, and it was always these big egos starting churches. This is a new church. The right. church, like it, we lived in Sedona, so it was like the church of the mother, father, God, this and that. Holy moly, yeah. And it starts out with a pure intention, and, a, and I've seen this time and time again. I always seem to get hooked up with grassroots projects hmm. right at the beginning. Somehow there's, I'm seated with it, and then it always turns into politics. And it's religion. I mean, religion had a pure beginning, and then it's politics, and uh, and it's and if you have a stickiness in it, you're not bringing through the most pure feed. Yeah. Well, I know what you mean. Actually, if you watched that panel discussion we had at Sophia University a, a couple of months ago, a month and a half ago, we we talked about this quite a bit. But there's a, a sort of a you know, it's a, it's a paradox, it's a catch-22, because on the one hand, you know, Christ, yeah. Christ said, don't hide your light under a bushel. You know, you mm -hmm. want to let it shine. On the other hand, if you begin stepping into some kind of teaching role prematurely, it can go to your head. And, you know, there are so many examples of people who kind of get caught up in, in the, the adulation or the fame or the attention they begin to get when, they, when they're into the role of a spiritual teacher and then they, you know, mm -hmm. one, they kind of spin out of control and often crash and burn. So it takes a lot of strength and purity and innocence, some of those qualities you mentioned earlier, innocence and simplicity and so on, to assume a more public role and not let it be your downfall. Yes, uh, and it also takes the fire of suffering through it. These years, these long years that I've been through, these dark nights where I wondered, why am I in a dark night for 10 years? Well, how are you going to use that information? Yeah. You know, it's like you still get in this place like you could be out speaking to people. You could be healing hearts, you know, but you're in here in, in grief and you're crying. And, and I actually had a grieving group. So, I, I mean, I definitely went to was working with people within that group and, and they were touching my heart. We were all. Uh, gently being taken care of, and I learned from that. I felt that I was part of that experience. So it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's you're tried. You really are tried through it. Yeah, my experience. And you know, there are some traditions. Uh, I think I was talking about this Humble. last week or the week before with somebody that in, in certain traditions, such as Zen, if you have an awakening, you know, the teacher says to you, "Okay, fine. Now wait ten years before you start teaching." You know, there, there's supposed to be yeah. this 
holding period where you mature mm -hmm. into it and you don't just go rushing out and put up a shingle. Oh, um, no. And in the beginning, it's like uh, it's heart fluttering. It's like, you know, when you can't contain it when you're in love, you can't contain it and you're making a fool of yourself. Yeah. And then you think after you integrate this, there's some kind of test. The tests get harder and mm -hmm. the challenges and the firings of life get harder. And though maybe, you know, it feels like sort of you've been through this purification, but your life has become a service to all life. And whatever your fires are, you embrace them. And, and where you can embrace them is where you need to burn. Yeah. So now that you have done this interview and a lot of people are going to find out about you, do you see yourself playing a more public role or is it just going to be this interview? I mean, do you want to interact with people in a more proactive way than you have been? Well, it seems to appear that the, the blog appeared. <laughs> Because yeah. there needs to be something. To There's not a heck of a lot going on with that blog. You have There's a, not a heck of a lot. You have a little blog. <laughs> yeah. There has been people that have contacted me through Skype and phone consults. So do you um, feel like you could be a benefit to people doing phone consults and Skype consults? And you would well, like, want to charge a little bit of money or something for your time or whatever, however you want to yeah. do it? Yeah. So it doesn't. I have to get out of the way and do whatever's next to do. And if that's what's next to do, then that's absolutely in line. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not really attached to it, but I'm open. You're open to, to whatever, how, it, how what, it unfolds. Whatever, yeah, whatever needs to unfold. You know, I don't know what that would be like. And right. so I can't really surmise. But I am open because I'm always open to um, loving and loving hearts. Mm -hmm. And people that I'm most attracted to are people that really want to do the work, that really are looking to find their heart. You know, those are the people that I love to have around me. People that have been through a lot of fire and haven't even had some kind of connection or personal relationship. You know, people that suffer a lot, they tend to be around me. Mm -hmm. And so then they're able to find love, find compassion and friendship and acceptance. And I think acceptance is really important. So I think people like that, not people who are trying to find the answer with the minds and, you know, like, what, what am I going to tell you? What could I tell you? Yeah. I can only love you. And I think that's the whole message. Nice. And that's the div divine's message. Is there some kind of a contact thing on your blog? So if people want to email you or contact you, they can? Um, no, but I'll have to make sure there is now. Yeah, you better do that <laughs> by Monday. <laughs> okay, I, I will. Yeah. And by Monday, and my husband will help me, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and it's a debt. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this later. It's just a technical thing about your blog. Uh, but, um, okay, so is there anything else that um, we should cover? That, you know, you're going to think about an hour from now, God, I should have said that. Anything else like that? I just listened to one of your interviews, and there was a fellow, uh, Moss, Richard Mr. Moss. And he said, there's nothing you need to do. You just need to love this person. You know, and I think that that's the entire message is to get out of the way, keep loving and uh, keep finding, keep finding your heart and don't give up. Know that you are love and that's the entry point. Find your goodness and, and expand it. That's beautiful. And I won't try to improve upon it by okay. elaborating, but that's great. Okay, so uh, yeah, thank you, Jane. Um, so I've been speaking with Jane Anderson Ross, who lives in Rochester, who is available by Skype to any place in the world. <laughs> and we'll see how things unfold for you, who, who appears to have a book or two in her. 
uh, or in her notes, and uh, it'll be interesting to sort of see how things go for you. Um, yeah. Because uh, I think you're kind of a little different, you know, than a lot of people I've interviewed. And there's there's just something very, like you said, well, love word is, is that really comes across as a lot, a lot, you radiate a lot of love, and there's a uniqueness and an originality or something in the way mm -hmm. in the way you present yourself, which I really like. I think other people will like it too. I um, appreciate that. So I'll be linking to Jane's blog, as I always link to people's websites and things, and you can get in touch with her through that if you'd like and see what comes of it. And as I said in the beginning, and as most of you know, this is an ongoing series of interviews. There are hundreds of them now, and I, continue to, I intend to continue doing this until my last breath, because uh, <laughs> hey. I love it. Uh, and you know, it's my way of being an instrument of the divine, as we, the point we started out with in this interview. Uh, so if you you know want to explore some of the older ones, go back to the past interviews menu on batgap.com, and uh, actually more people listen to this as an audio podcast than than view it as a video thing on YouTube. So if you don't have time to sit for two hours and watch something in front at your computer, subscribe to the audio podcast. You can you know listen to it while commuting or something. Um, then also on the site you'll see a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, which is usually one a week. And uh, there's the donate button, which I mentioned at the beginning, um, which we appreciate people contributing if they can. And a few other things. There's even like little fun things like, you know, ringtones that you can put on your phone, the Batcap theme song. So poke around among the menus and, and you'll see that stuff. So thanks for listening or watching, and thank you again, Jane. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.